On today's BG Podcast, we speak with Jason John Michael, the Assistant Director of Smart Mobility for the Austin Transportation Department. This episode was originally recorded on June 13th, 2018, and is sponsored by the Lowy Law Firm, Austin's go-to personal injury law firm. Welcome to the BG Podcast, conversations at the intersection of business, community, and public policy from the Austin metro and around Texas. Today's episode is brought to you by the Lowy Law Firm, delivering top-notch customer service in the Austin area. You can find this episode and prior recordings at www.binghamgp.com podcast and on iTunes and Google Play. Hello, my name is Jason John Michael. I am the Assistant Director of Smart Mobility for the City of Austin. Um, I am a 25-year veteran in the transportation technology space, uh, predominantly spending my time in the private sector helping uh, cities, counties, municipalities, and states, as well as the federal government, deploy, test, deploy, and understand how to correctly implement emerging technology solutions in transportation. Um, my, My background Uh, has been predominantly in systems integration. I'm a systems integrator by trade. Uh, So I have a unique uh, kind of uh, field proven experience and knowledge about uh, how systems truly uh, begin to be implemented as well as grow once they've they've been installed. My current role with the City of Austin, as I said before, is Assistant Director of Smart Mobility. Uh, As part of two different council resolutions, uh, which created both the program office as well as the, um, the my position. Um, these, uh, these two council resolutions set forth action for the city to begin testing and deploying uh, smart mobility solutions that would affect safety and mobility and access and equity to, different re- to all residents uh, in the city of Austin. Um, so my office is a cross-cutting role. Uh, we're not really trying to stand up a separate smart transportation department, mm-hmm. but more or less uh, cut through the existing uh, department divisions to better understand what actions and activities they have going on today, as well as those planned in the in the near near term future, and how those potential um, activities could could be utilized in a more smart and emerging. Uh, technology set. So in other words, make sure that we're not deploying technologies of old. And if we are deploying a technology of today, mm-hmm. that we're taking into account how that technology would be used sustainably in the future. Yeah. And real quick, I mean, that's pretty dynamic, though. I mean, just I keep up with the news and just the pace of what's considered transitive old versus now and new, it could change on the dime it really right has. now. Yeah, and you right. can find yourself chasing your tail. Mm-hmm. Uh, and at the beginning of a year, starting in one way only to go through a bunch of churn to find yourself at the same place at the end of the year. Mm-hmm. And so it's very important to, to not be reactive to all the hype that's going on in the, in the market sector. Um, let's take uh, autonomous vehicles as, as, a, as a potential uh, technology. Uh, a lot of people like to immediately go to the end game of what that's going to look like from a ubiquitous uh, solution set where where autonomous vehicles are running everywhere and, and there's not a lot of friction in the system, et cetera. Yes, you can you can talk about what types of efficiencies a road network could have in a, in a full-on automated platooning environment, but we're really very far away from that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think everyone's going to get a really good dose of that as we begin really introducing autonomous vehicle technologies into the mix uh, with human-driven mm-hmm. uh, cars because that's to me, the, the, the crux of what, how we figure out whether or not we're successful is how well do we make it through the transition. Mm-hmm. This hybrid solution that's going to raise VMT, there's going to be more cars on the road because there's going to be both human-driven as well as computer-driven vehicles. And really, it comes down to training everyone, uh, both the AI as well as all the human-driven vehicle, uh, all the human drivers, on how to interact with this new um, operator on the road. Mm-hmm. Uh, because... And, you know, here in Austin, we had the the luxury of uh, witnessing Google prior to Waymo launch their Google self-driving car project here in the Mueller community. Uh, and, you know, several months after that, we also uh, began getting some really good lessons learned on, on human behavior and how uh, at four-way stops, once uh, residents in that neighborhood realized that 
the Google vehicle was very timid, and if it ever thought that the other vehicle was going, whether you came to the stop at the same time or not, it would wait. Mm -hmm. And people realized that they didn't have to wait on that vehicle, that they could uh, basically disservice it and not allow it the right of way when it was time for it to go, and and that vehicle would sit there uh, at the stop sign waiting. (laughs) <laughs> so, um, similarly, we've seen other uh, lessons learned come from other cities who've been deploying recently, both in Tempe and, and Pittsburgh, mm-hmm. uh, related to similar things where, you know, these vehicles are going to require human interaction. They're going to require when they experience or come up on something on the roadway that that, that AI doesn't know how to compute, it's going to ask a human for help. So the question is... Um, what can we do as far as outreach and education with human-driven vehicle owners to help them better understand how to properly uh, interact with a self-driving car mm-hmm. so that they're not causing uh, unsafe conditions for themselves or the others in the, in the vehicles that, they, that are being driven by yeah. a computer. Well, let's, let's stay in that for a second. So, I mean, that definitely, I mean, I understand the local effort that will require in that, but that seems it's probably state, local, and federal components to doing that, right? And, I mean, I know there have been some AV bills, automated vehicle bills that have been floated and, and passed in the last few legislative cycles in Texas. Um, but what do you, I mean, just overall, the the patchwork of items that may have to kind of come out at all levels of government in the next few years to fully implement this, I mean, how do you see that playing out? I, I, I like where Texas is. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that... Be, having legislation and regulation be as enabling as possible right now is kind of the key. Um, those of us that spend a lot of time understanding what an AI does and specifically what an AI on an AV is doing understands that, that we're at the point, the swing point of which we, for normal driving conditions, we really need to get it out and test it in a live environment. You know, doing the tests on the campuses, uh, and, and doing those closed uh, route testing, we've challenged those systems as much as possible. It's mm-hmm. time to put it out in the live environment and test it for real with real people moving around uh, in, a, in a true, uh, what you would consider to be a true arterial network environment with, with pedestrians you know, doing their normal course of, of uh, mobility throughout the day. Bicyclists here in Austin, obviously, dockless scooters as well mm-hmm. become a part of that. And so you can and see bikes. and bikes, bikes yeah. right? So from a vulnerable road user perspective, there's a lot of considerations to take into place with, with regard to how autonomous vehicles operate and which which routes that they choose to, to operate in. And you're really good. The the the, the autonomous vehicle operators that that have done enough deployments and done enough tests, they understand what environments they want to work in to start off with in any city. Mm-hmm. You know, they're looking for help from folks like us to better understand what are some of the specific details around some of those routes that may be helpful. And in addition to that, what can you do as part of just your normal course of infrastructure, asset maintenance and management, et cetera, help? What are things that we can do in our current standard operating procedures and processes that may help AVs in the future? Gotcha. Yeah. Do you see it, you know, just I look at it, so apart from, I understand the utilitarian component of this, but just from a average citizen, you know, reading the paper about incidents may have occurred with these vehicles, or just having an overall view of, you know, what happens if I step out of the road and this vehicle is going to stop one time, or just, you know, there's no human behind the wheel, right? And the PR, I guess, beyond the the political components are needed here, I, I, I just look at things sometimes about the just the overall public engagement part of this that's going to be required, right? Do people to buy in? I mean, I was in a, I got the chance to pilot to, uh, to or to be uh, be part of a pilot up in North Texas where they were rolled out a, I forgot the name of the company, but you know, we got to go in their their autonomous vehicle and my first time in one. Yeah, the Milo. And, yeah, and it was, uh, I mean, it was smooth and you know, I don't know if it's generational, but I was in there for you know a minute. And you kind of you just forget. I mean, there was a there was a driver. There was a person in the driver's seat. They weren't had their, didn't have their hands on the wheel, and you just go, and then you realize, well, the trip's over, and you got to where you need to go. And yeah. that, in that case, though, it was more of a fixed route, um, but still, it was just you know you, the the wow factor kind of went away very fast. I think which I think is promising, right? Because it was cool 
getting in there and then you realize, oh, you're just another trip and you're at your destination and right. there you go. You can very normal. Right. Yeah. For, for most of us that have, that have used uh, some of the airports around the country that have some level of a semi-autonomous to autonomous people movers to move in between terminals or concourses, you know, mm-hmm. it's much like that. I mean, you feel like you're on one of those things, you know, yeah. and then you quickly realize, don't, you forget that it's the computer that's driving this thing. There's no human really interacting on, on, a, on a turn-by-turn basis. But, you know, to your, to your point of, of outreach and to your earlier question about regulation and what, I think those two actually are kind of combined together. Mm-hmm. And I think we're in an area now uh, in the United States where we really need to get out more deployments that are live and in in the where the public is using them, um, because that level of proving ground, I'll call it, because now you're out of pilot, right? You really prove that the technology is proven. Really, what we're tr- proving is the how the technology works in a social construct. That proving ground to me is the criti- most critical component of the adoption of autonomous vehicles. Because the, in there lies everything related to any kind of social equity component, any legal equity, right, as far as regulation, mm-hmm. safety, ADA access, all that sort of stuff, and then any liability associated with any of the legal uh, um, structure that comes out of that. Mm-hmm. And I think that states, the federal government and cities, you know, we're all, we're all kind of in that position of we need to learn more before we can really have a better understanding of what, if anything, we need to regulate. And, yeah, and and at the end of the day, I think it's probably going to be liability more than anything else that's going to drive that that discussion. I think that's why you see right now most of the, if you if you were to scan most of the deployments of AB across the country across the world, you're going to find that most of them are on private land, right? Mm-hmm. They're doing um, some type of uh, fixed route for the most part. There's a few others that aren't right. The robo taxis out in in Phoenix and Pittsburgh, and there's others around around the world that aren't on fixed route. Um, but in the ones that, that either are or are not on fixed route, there's usually a specific scenario. Like there, if if it's on a private campus, it's it's moving, you know, employees that are moving out of one campus to, to lunch or where most of the, the lunch businesses are, things mm-hmm. like that. So you're seeing these unique scenarios that are very low-hanging fruit as far as these are easy ways that we could deploy AVs and at least get it out there, get it out in front of people, et cetera. And, and that's a start, but it's to, it's we're already at the point now where we need to move forward with more full-on um, AV technologies that hit a larger uh, base of the population. I understand, yeah. And, and that's the only way that these things end up learning enough to be safer. Yeah. So it's kind of this chicken and egg thing. If you don't get them out there doing more miles in your community, then they don't understand your community. Much like me going to New York and trying to drive safely is pretty much a non-starter, mm-hmm. right? Same thing could be held true for any AV. You can't take an AV out of another city, just drop it into a new city and say, have at it. I mean, you could, right? But mm-hmm. the level of smartness how much it's learned about that road network, about the specific intricacies of turning movements around intersections, it won't have until it's done it at least once or twice. Yeah. Similar to us. I agree. You know, I grew up in Austin, and so, I mean, I, I learned to drive. And I, and I, going to high school, I had to go cross town, right? So navigating highways, navigating all the back roads. And sometimes, and I've read studies in this, it's just you get to your destination, and it's almost a second nature. Yeah. Like, you're, you're, you're aware, but you're just going. And then... You know, like even go coming, you know, coming to your offices, it was just, you know, infield, in, you know, Lake Austin Boulevard, boom, 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 with this traffic go this way, and correct. But it's already it's running a million, you know, my my head like fast, like that. Correct, so. like like just coming up here on the Lake Austin Redwood Trail intersection, and mm-hmm. she came over to the office, and AV wouldn't know if they were in the left lane, and needed to get in the right lane to go through mm-hmm. at that intersection. They wouldn't have known that until they got closer to to seeing or to where it shows on the high-definition map that that's a turn-only lane. Yeah. Because that turn-only lane isn't, isn't in the GIS database. Mm-hmm. It's only geofenced back for the for the actual storage of that turn, turning lane, right? Yeah. So it's only so far back. So if they're back near the, the uh, apartment complex, the UT apartment complex, they don't know it in time. Mm-hmm. The, the computer doesn't. Yeah. Right? And if there's cars in front of it, it's definitely not 
you know, using its camera and seeing the right, left turn only. Yeah. So in that case, it looks like an uninformed visitor that's come here that's, you know, whose nav has decided, oh, I need to get over. Right? Yeah. It's the same thing. So the same thing you see with, you know, newbie TNC drivers or anybody that's in a rental vehicle that's using their, their nav to get around town that, that frustrates us, mm-hmm. right? That's the way AVs are going to, their turning movements, how they move throughout the city is going to be a lot like that to begin with until mm-hmm. they, much like you and I, do enough time on our Austin roads to understand, you know, how they need to, to, to manage and, and make their way through those, that road network. I mean, you look at like, um, you know, Guadalupe uh, headed and, and uh, Wabaca headed north up to the Y, you know, right there and uh, at the, where the state complexes are. Mm-hmm. You know, depending on, if you're headed north, depending on where you go, you might not want to take Guadalupe, right? You might take the other road because it's going to take you around the state complexes and get you over 35 a lot quicker. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but, but you look at any nav, and the nav doesn't see that as a major road. So it's going to send you all the way around the state complexes before it sends you over onto 38th Street, I think, to go over to, yeah. to 35. There's a very good example of all the Austinites are going to be bypassing, you know, the AVs to a point until the AVs learn, hey. Yeah, no, I've been in, I've been um, in several TNT rides where you want to relax, but you realize you see where they're taking. You can see that you know their the map, their GPS map in their phone, where it's taking them. You're like, no, actually, look, look, just just go this way and take this way. Like, just trust me, you're you're gonna take you're gonna. That's not the right way, way to go. Yeah, you know, you're gonna just, or just it'll take a very it'll be a a longer route that we need to go on. So. Right. And have you ever gotten in a TNC where the TNC driver was maybe not comfortable enough taking instruction from you and decided they were going to follow the turn-by-turn turn on the nav? Um, not so much. I usually let, depending on how, where I'm going, if it's, if it's just, I, I like just sitting in the car sometimes and just relaxing. But too. it depends on if it's, if it's if I need to go meet it, there's a need, I need to be there X amount of time kind of deal, or if it's blatantly going to put us in traffic or make me unsafe. <laughs> you right. know, like, that's a blind turn. You don't need to go that way. You know, I, right. I try to just relax and enjoy the ride, but right, yeah. exactly. I mean, I, I you know, South by mm-hmm. you know, gives me good examples, um, relevant examples recently because, you know, we were, I was having to go over to the different South by events from this office in order to make it for different uh, interviews or, or anything else that was going on, and um, the TNC drivers pick up and they would they would on, they would want to do the, they weren't even changing the routes. They were wanting to slug them down Cedar Chavez. No, no. And I'm like, no, guy, you're, you're, come back up here through Teartown, you know, go down yeah. 15th, you yeah. know, let's go in from the north, you mm-hmm. know, can you get me down to the Hilton in no time, I'll be at the chamber in no time, right? Yeah. And, um, you know, but convincing that driver that that was the right route was very difficult, but he ended up doing it. Yeah. And he was, he, he didn't speak very good English, so at the end of the day, I think some of it was, he didn't feel whether, what I, what I was doing was maybe legal or right, yeah. you know. But imagine being getting into a self-driving vehicle, right, where the route's been pre-planned, and it's south by, and you know that that route's wrong. Yeah. How do you yeah. interact with the computer in the vehicle who has strict instructions on where to take you mm-hmm. and exact, the exact route that's been set out to do that? Mm-hmm. So it does change not just driver behavior with other interactions with other drivers on the road, but even the passenger behavior and the expectations of what the rider in an autonomous vehicle and, mm-hmm. and their level of experience. So the idea is, is they're going to get more personal experience in doing whatever they want to do, sit back, relax, watch a movie, do email, whatever, and try to not pay attention to the fact that they're probably not going the route that you want them to go, yeah. as you would in you know, a New York cabbie or something, yeah. right? Well, let's um, I want to switch gears and um, I want to come back to this Austin Smart Mobility Roadmap. Sure. And for those, you know, I'm, I'm fairly familiar with it, but just can you, I know there's five key areas of that, that plan. Can you just go through those and, and we'll have some questions, I'm sure, but uh, just talk about that. Sure. Uh, so the roadmap's really there to, to do just that, lay out exact lay out destinations and different ways to get to those destinations. And those destinations being the the emerging technologies and the areas that we see where those emerging technologies fit. And so we came up with five key areas that that fits into. Um, and those are uh, shared use mobility, or in, in other words, finding ways to reduce single occupant vehicle rides mm-hmm. and trips. Um, uh, electric vehicles and the infrastructure around electric vehicle charging, uh, autonomous vehicles, 
data and technology specific to, to how those data and technologies are used to, to bring about a lot of the, the outcomes that the aforementioned other three are going to do. And then lastly, land use and infrastructure because it is a critical component as well. So I'll start with, with shared use mobility. And you asked me prior to this interview, you know, uh, what's going on with uh, with Dockless? Yeah. Uh, the well, Dockless thing's I, one I, of those great opportunities yeah. to talk about shared use. I look at it more, I guess, holistically because it seems there's a lot of consolidation going on now, or, or at least with, um, you know, Uber, Uber, I think, purchased required jump right after the city's opening of their pilot. And um, I know, I'm sure there'll be further consolidations as well. I think you're going to see a lot of the large companies that have a lot of, a lot more VC to mm-hmm. be able to try out different things. I think you're going to see these companies really kind of pick several different modes in a vertically integrated solution set, I'll call mm-hmm. it. Think of, you know, a full-on solution that involve a multimodal trip set. Um, you will likely find companies like Uber, Lyft, Ford, GM, others... Uh, that are looking to vertically integrate to whatever they're delivering. The vehicle manufacturers, the OEMs, are, are very much focused on this because they see this as the next best thing to buy to selling cars, probably even better than selling cars. You know, you look at GM's numbers related to OnStar services, and it quickly you quickly begin to realize that there's there's a market for vehicle telematics and that level of uh, communication and connection with your customer. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you'll see, I think you'll see that happen a lot, right? Where, you know, your major players are going to get involved in more things. Other than the, your car manufacturers are going to do more than just sell cars. You know, they're really going to sell mobility services and they're going to stitch their car network into their vehicle network and their vehicle technology into a full-on solution. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you're going to see technology companies like Uber find ways to partner with other technology companies or do full it's, it's they're only right now connecting to them in one particular segment of their trip they want to find ways to connect to them from from door to door yeah well, look at um, I know in New York at the city bike right and so it's even branding it's just look it's a corporate company all the modes may, may be owned by one manufacturer, but then a company comes in and says, we want to be you know, city bikes or we want to be whoever bike in our market. Right. Or for all, for all the transit. Right. Yeah. Right. Very, and New York's a wonderful model for that because you've seen how they've been able to uh, kind of pull the taxi industry together and the New York taxi framework as well. I think um, you know, that's helped the taxi industry actually stay relevant in a TNC uh, environment mm-hmm. in, in, in New York. A little different in New York, right? The, the the whole the whole business practice of taxi and TNC in New York is a lot different than any other city, I would call. Uh, I'd say that Paris is probably very similar. Um, but yeah, there's these companies are uh, are finding unique ways to make sure that they're connecting to their customers in more than one way, uh, and they're gathering data from because they're separate mode sets. Right, with separate applications, they're getting different rich pieces of data about first mile, last mile, um, trends, uh, customer behavior, things that would be wonderful for transportation agencies to understand how uh, demand is being, um, what areas of the network are seeing the highest demand at what parts of the day, information that we currently can't get. Mm-hmm. Right, and so I find the business partnership with these companies is the best way to move forward. It's not about who owns what anymore, right? And so we got to get rid of this idea of ownership, you know, um, and to and get get into an area where we're partnering. Uh, we're 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 partnering with partners that have um, similar goals and visions, but we're partnering on the idea of a unified outcome. Yeah. And that's sort of the difference versus the way that smart mobility, smart transportation partnering has been done in the past. It's it's not been focused always on the outcome component. And if we can drive our, our partnering agreements to focus more on the actual outcomes of that partnering rather than the fundamental um, similarities of the organizations, mm-hmm. we'll get a lot further. Right. So... Yeah, we can come back to, to scooter sharing for a second. So I know that that just, um, at least as the time of this recording, that's been the one of the, the hot items um, on, the, on the transit side of things in Austin. Yeah. And just you know, what did what, just what the way that all played out, right? Um, and 
giving your position, I mean, what just what was your take on that? This, I mean, yeah. So, you know, I much found it that, that it was, I believe in pivoting with disruption. Mm-hmm. You're going to get disrupted. We're, I'm work, we work in a disruptive area of, of technology, right? And um, so if you know that you're always going to be in a disruptive state, then you should try to find some way to create a level of sustainable legislation, ordinance, or whatever to help manage that. And so knowing what that when we launched on this, it was dockless bikes. We knew that dockless scooters were right around the corner. We didn't think that necessarily scooters were going to launch in the midst, on the same week that we launched our, mm-hmm. our pilot program. But you got to hand it to the private sector. They they can anticipate things and then create situations. Quite honestly, the disruption didn't um, hurt the city in any kind of way. Uh, it did, in fact, um, accelerate all of the uh, potential activity and, and outcomes that would have happened in the pilot. Okay. Uh, and at the end of the day, I think what happened to us ended up helping the rest of the country. The rest so. of the country was also focused or, or set on doing different dockless bike or even some dockless scooter back, back west pilots. And what happened here in Austin gave everyone, gave every city very good lessons learned in the fact that we were entering into a time, an era, where you can no longer just do an open pilot. Mm-hmm. Pilots are probably going to have to be codified and regulated in some kind of way through council actions so that in the middle of your pilot, a new emerging technology doesn't come and disrupt that pilot and upset every other business owner that you've asked to come in as part of that pilot. Gotcha. So just encapsulate a little bit of flexibility, however that's worded, just to... Right. Protection and flexibility at the same time. Yeah. Right? Protection for your partners that are willing to not launch, Right. Wait, wait on launching their business so that they can better understand how they're going to operate in a, in a community of other operators, mm-hmm. right? But that means that they're telling their investors, hold on, you're, we're not going to start making revenue yet. So don't even think about where we're getting down to getting into the black, mm-hmm. right? But you got to hold on for three months while I, while I work with the city of Austin so that we can do this in good partnership with the city. Right. If you do not have regulation that protects that group of individuals and the, the potential market that you're developing with them through that pilot, then what happened to Austin could happen again. And you could see an emerging technology that's just an iteration above what you're currently trying to pilot would come in and disrupt that pilot to a point where you would have to codify it. Yeah. And so now it's almost a given that cities moving forward in emerging technologies are going to have to codify their pilots. Are you seeing Are you seeing um, any sort of ordinance? Or are you seeing any of those things happening now? I mean, I guess we're after Austin. Did you see any other cities that were contemplating, or your colleagues in other cities maybe that were contemplating these kind of pilots that took what lessons learned here and framed that kind of language into proposed or, or proposed uh, pilots rather? Absolutely, and I think the wonderful thing about anything in this emerging technology space is that all of the the government entities are are finding ways to communicate that we've never done before because it's not it's happening so fast Mm -hmm. and the the veracity of it so so strong that um, it requires you to to really reach out across the country and talk to people that you would normally not talk to to get a better understanding of what they're experiencing and so, like a lot of the the rules that we have in our current permit uh, today, you know, which is really just a a running six month codified pilot and six months agile um, scrums. That's the way you could look at it right now. Uh, at some point in time, we'll probably move to a twelve month permit process. But in the meantime, in order to make sure that we can be nimble uh, and pivot with change, uh, we went with six months. We figured that was at least something that we could do, and that's about the the lowest you want to go for permitting and all that you had staff and systems and stickers and all kinds of stuff to get that going and so to change it in a, in a more pervasive three-month iteration would be just a mm-hmm. lot of extra administrative work would the you know with the next legislative session looming to probably next well next six months or so i mean is, is, was that a factor also just i think with any pilots y'all do we're, we're close to a session 
um, given Austin's proximity to the capital and the city's relationship with the capital on, uh, yeah, I mean, you, as you yeah. are aware, how that can go. And that's what I've, I've tried to pivot with mm-hmm. again. You know, I'm like using anticipating this role, what might come at the capital. And well, just to get out of a stereotype of mm-hmm. city versus state related emerging technology solutions and mobility and transportation, um, I don't think it's needed. And at the end of the day, uh, we're merely trying to maintain safety and equity and access for everyone, even even those that that are mobility challenged to be able to have access to the same level of infrastructure they've had access to with this new mode in place. Got it. And so to me, it's about protection of uh, city right-of-way. Uh, these things mostly operate on sidewalks, uh, and the sidewalk area in that city right-of-way is usually where a lot of these issues come up. Um, and so it's just a matter of safety. Mm-hmm. I, I love the dockless scooter and bike solution, so much so that we made sure that the the ordinance that we put into place was dockless mobility. Remember, we called it dockless mobility because um, there's new modes that are, well, they're here on our shores. They're just being tested or are being tested in very closed environments right now, but um, dockless bikes and scooters are only the beginning of dockless personal mobility. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you go to Shenzhen, China, or any other place in, in Asia, in some of these major master plan communities, you'll you'll find, you know, different electric, people move pods and, and solutions that that actually look very futuristic compared to what we're doing here today, and those things are available in, in Asia today, and they'll be here in a number of years. Gosh, uh, moving to electric ve- electric vehicles, EV, and infrastructure, just. Uh, you know, I see Teslas, Olivia Mueller, but I see Teslas all over the place in Austin, Mopac, and 35. Um, it, you know, it's very much, you know, I think, I think still a niche market, right, for a certain, a certain you know, economic demographic right now. But what overall for, for EVs become, from the city side, beyond just, you know, consumer adoption of it, what's Austin missing for, you know, when, if and when EVs are, you know, from like, from, lower price to higher price cars are available for mass market. I mean, what are we, are we there yet in terms of being able to fully, fully uh, serve that kind of, that kind of, that kind of population of vehicles? I think that we are, we are prepared. Mm-hmm. Um, How you so? Know, we're, we're one, well, it's wonderful that we have such a, a strong partner uh, with Austin Energy. Um, you know what? You got to hand it to to the city of Austin for for truly being an innovative city and thinking about the future and finding ways to anticipate what that future state looks like. Create solutions that that will uh, make ready the city for being able to take advantage of that new uh, that new uh, technology or whatever it happens to be. And they did the same thing here with um, with. Uh, vehicle electrification with Austin Energy. So I can't remember the date, but it's it's almost 10 years ago now. City Council resolution that um, gave Austin Energy the authority to move forward with studies as well as uh, capital improvement projects to begin uh, architecting the underlying framework on how electric vehicle charging would happen in Austin. If, you know, DOE requires that if you're going to charge a vehicle electric vehicle and you want to get green credit for that, then the electrons that are feeding that vehicle need to come from green energy. In mm-hmm. other words, it can't come from a coal burning plant. Mm-hmm. So Austin Energy had to find ways to map um, energy production to energy dis- distribution. So we're lucky here in the city of Austin in that our energy company is both the, dis- the production and distribution company. That's usually not the case. And that's where the rub happens. Um, and so that's where you see a lot of DOE grants and NSF grants uh, in other cities. NSF is? National Science Foundation. All right. So they're trying to find ways to bridge the gap between the energy production and the energy distribution uh, side of things in some of these cities because they're not usually owned and operated by the same entity. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we're lucky here in Austin that we have that. So from the perspective of being having the underlying infrastructure out of the ground and in the back office to be able to do this, we have it. Um, Coral Popham and the and the Austin Energy team are moving forward with uh, uh, several DC fast charging stations throughout the city. They're also doing a um, 
a P3 with another private sector provider that will also do more. Mm-hmm. Um, so the idea, they, they, they're in a position where they're doing make ready as they see the electrical electric vehicles continuing in the market. They got a pretty good um, ticker on how many are coming in. And so from that, they can get an idea of how much charging infrastructure is needed. Obviously, the more we need more, right? Uh, people like convenience. Mm-hmm. And so it's maybe not always convenient right now it, to charge your electric vehicle, especially one of these DC fast chargers, because they're pretty popular. Uh, and there's only one in town right now, but there'll be more coming by the end of the year, uh, upwards of a, a, over a dozen, uh, to my knowledge. Is there a way, I mean, is, is there a... Is there some way of tracking how many you know, EVs are in are in Austin or in, you're in Texas? I mean, I guess when you register your car, is there? I mean, is there a, for 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 public sector just knowledge of you know what's infrastructure? Do you? I mean, can you look up the DMV? How many, your DMV just you register? Okay, there's 20 Teslas that have been registered to Austin people with Austin addresses or yeah, exactly. You're just going to the DMV and then getting down in the the, the county tax assessor's office to understand you know all right, how many. How many vehicles of this type mm-hmm. exist and in, in, that are registered in the in the county? Gotcha. So we touched uh, on. I'm sorry, you on? No, I was just going to say that you know EVs is more than you know it's a whole ecosystem of electric vehicles, electric charging, you know getting rid of range anxiety, et cetera, right? So you know the Bolt has brought around a whole new concept of what I'll call uh, EVs for everyone. You know that's a term that that Austin Energy is using. Um, you know, there's a, the GM Maven program that's been launched here in Austin, which is uh, much, much like a car to go kind of service right now. So you can walk up with the app on your phone. You can unlock an electric bolt uh, and pay by the minute to mm-hmm. drive it around. If you wanted to do that as a TNC driver, you could do that as well. Their, their end user license agreement allows you to do that. So, it, you know, they already have, uh, Maven, I think, has got... Um, 20 or so bolts with a lot more coming on the way wow. uh, to town. Uh, they're typically, you see them around the Seaholm area. Uh, they it's more of the Seaholm than where the urban core. Well, yeah. And, I, you know, it's, it's interesting. If you get on Maven's app, you can find out where they are around town. So they they all started, they launched before South By, and they were all lined up right there on electric drive. And that was the only time they were all on electric drive. They're mm-hmm. all over the town now. Yeah. Uh, and they just, you know, pretty much just like car to go and zip car, they they're using spots. They're, they haven't went the whole branding route that those two companies have went, but they're they're you know able to do the normal transportation as a service and park it, and they take care of the parking fees for the customer on Got the back side. I think we touched on AVs already. Um, so data and technology. You talk about what elements of data and technology in smart mobility should cities focus on. Yeah. So uh, there's two main areas, and they're kind of connected back to. Um, AVs in some ways. So what I refer to as a safety analytic environment for autonomous vehicles is one of the key data and technology needs that that every city has. So as I mentioned before, autonomous vehicles have to learn, have to constantly learn. And if they ever come across something that they don't know how to learn, the one thing they can't do right now is reason. If you and I came up on a single post sign where the top screw had fallen out and the sign was upside down, Right, mm-hmm. I would be able to look and they go, "Oh, that's stage forty-five. Yeah, the arrow is pointing to the left, but really that's to the right." Yeah, I'm going to turn right. An AV wouldn't even know how to read the sign, let alone infer that the sign's damaged, been flipped upside down, and I need to turn right. Yeah. So in that particular case, when the HD map doesn't match the environment that it's sensing, it's going to call. It's going to ask the safety driver, or if it's a different type of solution, it's going to phone somebody, right? Phone home. And try to ask what's you know what which one do I do? Do I trust my map or do I trust my sensors? Right? In a safety analytic environment, is a real real time environment that's feeding information to the vehicles that are on that roadway. So, like if we take technologies that we have available today, like fisheye cameras for at intersections for for pedestrian safety movements, so that we can better sense where when pedestrians in a crosswalk. If we use technologies that are uh, mobile phone based that allow us to understand how people are moving through through um, foot traffic and pedestrian traffic uh, around around intersections, if that information can be collected at the intersection and provided 
relevant information provided to those self-driving vehicles, or even not, right? I mean, this could be very good information for human-driven vehicles too, right? So this is really a partially a connected vehicle environment where um, this information is, is localized to that area and the vehicle gets it as they're coming in the area and they get a quick sense of, well, these are the things I need to look out for, right? Yeah. And especially if that area was known as a high, uh, a high, high jaywalking area, for yeah. instance, right? Or these days, you know, um, a lot of uh, scooters or something like that. Well, then an AV might be able to, to preset itself for some additional sensing array, for some additional computation that might be needed in order to make sure that it can safely make it through that particular area uh, of town. Gotcha. And then with land use and infrastructure, just where, what changes are you seeing? We might touch on this with the last few three uh, sort of bullets, but just what what needs do we need to change in Austin to, you know, from AV and EVs to, to, to even, I guess, to be ready for what's coming. How about that? Just to be ready for what's coming, what's already here, and what you're seeing in other markets currently. Um, what are things we're doing right as a city? And what are things we need to, uh, not necessarily doing wrong, but things we need to just do to because th- these things are coming? Yeah, I think what we're doing right is we're embracing the technology, and you know, we're definitely in a, in a uh, bring-it-here-to-test-it kind of environment, right? That's, that's the beauty of Austin and the innovative... Um, uh, community that we have here um, and I would say that uh, you know the things that we need to do to, to make our, our land use and infrastructure ready part of that safety analytic environment is part of that but when you start looking at vertical construction to me that's a critical area because and it's an area that as I've been communicating more with land developer companies and real estate institutes and such um, I get the sense that they're very concerned right now because if they listen to all the hype, you know, they would say, well, we're not building any more parking garages, right? Mm-hmm. They're telling me they're going to go away in five years. Well, that's kind of silly, right? I mean, they're not going to go away in five years. You know, parking's not going to all of a sudden not be an issue in five years from now. Um, what you're likely going to see is a parking garage, you know, the, the financial ROI play on that's about... 30 years or so these days if you're building a brand new parking garage today you've got a master plan development or whatever i would be making sure that that garage has the is being designed with the capabilities of being turned into a mixed-use facility mm-hmm. afterwards no I've, I've seen some of that or at least some garages where they've the way they've been built that there's contemplation even putting you know, of stacking on top of it right so they have struts or we want to call it in place already so you can they build can, on top. Yeah, and then the garage can easily become a lobby. and Exactly, or mixed-use commercial. Mm-hmm. This is exactly what I'm talking about. People, Land developers are getting need to get a little bit more. Um, they're going to have to spend more money with their designers and architects mm-hmm. at the end of the day. That's really what it comes down to. Yeah. Is they've, they're going to have to – it's not a cookie-cutter, I can do this and I can do it on the cheap anymore. I'm going to have to rethink about what I'm designing, how I'm designing it, more importantly, the ingress and egress – to that facility, right? So AVs are going to ingress and egress into a into a, a parking lot or something like that much differently than a human-driven vehicle. Um, that's why you've seen some of the AV demonstrations around the country fail because they have they they're using the same level of access to the curb that the human-driven vehicles are are using, and a human is going to cut off an AV every day. Yeah, <laughs> and so. From a land use development, vertical construction is huge, but just as I mentioned, curb access is probably the biggest thing in any city. And it's not just AVs, it's everything in smart mobility. From the curb and the parking that's near the curb, or that space, I'll call it, that infrastructure space, is critically important across the city, whether that's for valet, for taxi zones, for commercial drop-off pickup, for the task solutions like car to go zip car and others that i just mentioned um you know the ability for tnc's to maybe look at utilizing uh these spaces and accessing the curb for drop off and pickup rather than doing it in the right lane uh, we're beginning to see some some really unique incident uh, data come from cities 
where TNCs are allowed to drop off and pick up in the right lane, much like taxis. However, they're not badged accordingly. Mm-hmm. And so as, a, as just a normal driver, if you're driving in a right lane in a city and you see a taxi in front of you, whether it's stopped or not, you have this much like riding behind a mail carrier. You know they're going to make infrequent st- the frequent stops, and you, you, you're on guard to know yes. that they may stop and people may get out in the middle of a travel lane, mm-hmm. right? And that's kind of a, okay, I can expect that. Now replace that branded, badged taxi with a, somebody's Honda. Oh, I've, I've, I've experienced that, yes, on 6th Street. And we're having... Or, sorry, on Congress Avenue. Yeah, we've yeah. had rear-end collisions, you know, with, when people are ingressing, ingressing out of these TNCs, and people are getting hurt really mm-hmm. bad. Uh, and so I think that you're going to see something change across the nation where, you know, TNCs are going to have to start operating a lot more like taxis in a lot of ways. And if, or they're going to have to be, um, they're somehow going to have to showcase themselves to be that they're not a human, just a normal sedan. Yeah. You know, that's the thing about taxis. They're badged that way so that people understand that their, their vehicle operation and turning movements and stoppages, et cetera, are going to be different. Yeah. So then, it's one last question. Um, you brought up P3s, which are public-private partnerships earlier. Just how can, what are ways that that you've seen uh, thus far and then look in the future that private firms, startups to establish companies um, can work with your department and, or, and with municipalities just broadly, but definitely, definitely with Austin? Uh, I'd say help us learn. Mm-hmm. Um, we're all in the learning environment right now. We all, we all see the, great potential business market potential that autonomous and connected vehicles have but in a lot of ways we're we're not quite we haven't taken flight yet and so in the smart mobility program um, I'm building partnerships so that we can begin understanding what some of this technology and data can offer so if a partnership involved from an autonomous look at autonomous vehicles if if a partnership involved autonomous vehicles from a private company perspective, working with the city, that could include both the autonomous vehicle manufacturer, right, an engineering firm, you know, to do reporting and calculation, analysis of data, et cetera, um, a, another firm that may be more involved in public information and outreach because all of this involves connection with our residents and we need to make sure that we're educating them. So when you, when you really look at how the partnership landscape lays out, there's a place for everyone to, to partner with the city, and, and we all learn so that all of our businesses and business models can work in the future. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for the city of Austin, we're, we, we have to be very careful about picking winners and losers. And so much that was laid out in the ordinance was in my role is to create a revenue-neutral um, method to demonstrate which is really proof of concept so proof of concept pilot and prove out emerging technologies so that um, our elected officials can make more informed decisions on how to move forward Got it. And so that's what really we're doing we're, we're, we're doing a lot of um, deployment but um, we're each coming into the middle right so the city's taking on uh, its own costs associated with, uh, uh, you know, permits and staff time and the value of the infrastructure as well as the right of way. So we're giving all of that as part of the partnership, right? And the private sector is bringing their technologies and their emerging solutions uh, and other um, uh, equipment and hardware to test out in that in that environment so that gives us the ability for us to learn what what the private sector is currently ideating on what what their current iteration of technology is Mm -hmm. which gives us a better idea of where that particular technology is headed that gives us an idea of what we need to do as far as our next procurement laws etc but then uh, in turn what it gives the private sector is better use cases on how their technologies could actually solve civic needs yeah. And so at the end of the day, we all get what we want. Now, that does require a significant amount of work on the city's part, right? Because we needed to get out of the habit of shopping shiny technologies for civic need, right? As a city, I know my civic needs. I know my needs, right?
right? I know what I know. I need more people. I need more time. I need more money, right? But anyway, mm-hmm. uh, we know what our needs are in the community as far as safety, equity, mobility, and access to that transportation solution set. In the past, we may not have done a very good job of documenting those needs, and the Smart Mobility Program Office is going through that now and documenting, at least from an emerging technologies perspective, what are our needs in those in these five areas, as well as in the in the goals that are set out uh, in the Austin Strategic Plan. Okay. Um, and so, the idea is is that if we are know our needs, then I should be able to look at solutions that are out there and determine how they fit my needs. You know, does it look like this technology may solve one of my needs? Great. Well, we also are currently trying to solve those needs. So I have a decent idea of my current capabilities, right, to solve those needs. And they're never perfect, right? And so we use capability maturity modeling and indexing as a method to uh, baseline what the city's currently doing, right? So if it's travel demand management, for instance, as a technology. Um, and I know what my needs are related to that travel demand management landscape in, in a smart mobility uh, ecosystem, right? Um, and then I currently know how well I'm performing with what we've done in the past in travel demand management. So if I can find ways where we can take, we can take technologies that have been presented to us and better understand how those technologies may fill civic need, that's one great so one great win, right? If I can take it that next step further and take that technology into a piloting or proving phase to better understand how that technology can actually raise my capabilities today to meet that current need, right? So can I do a better job with this technology to meet the current demand? Yeah. Or, better yet, can that technology solve today but also prepare me to sustain, sustainably solve the same need in the future, you know, for as long as it possibly can, as long as the technology is still relevant, right? To me, that is the, the golden egg that I'm looking for, is those type of technologies that not only have a, give us the ability to better raise our capabilities to meet current need, but also prepare us to sustainably meet future needs. Got it. Jason, I want to thank you for your time. Appreciate it. Yeah, man. All right. Welcome. Thank you. It was great. Thank you for listening to today's BG podcast. You can find this episode and prior recordings at www.binghamgp.com slash podcast and iTunes and Google Play. Subscribe to stay current on future posts. Thank you to our sponsor, The Lowy Law Firm. You can find more information about them in the show notes.